Welcome to the 16th episode of the Class Cast Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Tibbins, and today I'd like to talk just a little bit about the idea of learning styles and really a lot of different educational philosophies or, or pedagogy styles that we see and hear promoted both uh, through media, through professional development, and maybe that are championed within individual schools or school divisions. Earlier today, I had a coworker send out a, a blog post, an article about the idea of using different learning styles a lot of times through, say, like stations, you know, uh, simultaneously in the classroom to help students who have different learning preferences access content. I don't love it. <laughs> and and it's not because it's it's not a good idea to try to tailor instruction to students. However, the, the article basically points out that the individual teacher should be taking the time to create and differentiate the instruction to meet the different learners' needs and styles. Unfortunately, there isn't really any research to support that this kind of activity works, right? The um, there's a there's a study came out recently or is on the verge of coming out from some researchers at Indiana University that points out that very few people actually use their learning styles consistently. Very few people have the opportunity to use that in the professional setting, and students who even have a strong stated preference for a particular learning style almost never study in that style. Instead. The reality is that most people use the same study and review methods, usually things along the lines of study, review, read and highlight, read and rewrite. A lot of repetition is what actually most people do and what works and leads to some of the best results. Now, in the article uh, or in the blog post where the the writer was pushing the idea of hitting on multiple modalities, allowing students to move if they prefer it, to read if they prefer it, to work together if they prefer it. I don't actually have any problems with this. My concern here is that sometimes we become beholden to an ideology and believe that that is the best way, that this is the solution to all of our problems, that students need to be able to learn in their own way. And teachers invest hours and hours and hours of their planning time to try to meet those needs. The unfortunate reality is in trying to meet those needs, teachers are giving up intense amounts of time, immense planning hours, time before and after school, not just to plan one individual lesson, which is already time-consuming enough to do well. We have teachers who are creating these, these lessons that include multiple different stations with multiple different learning styles or modalities in mind, and in the time that they could have been, say, working with small groups of students, interacting one-on-one, -on -one, building personal relationships, they're doing the additional planning. They're doing that differentiation. Now, I, I, I'm not arguing against differentiation. I'm not arguing against stations. I'm not arguing against any of that. My point here is simply that the person who wrote the original article, which uh, I'll probably link in, in this post, I will certainly link to other articles that I'm about to reference, the author means very, very well, right? That is not the, the question. This is not a person that, that appears to be profiting off of a, you know, a sales gimmick or anything like that. The author has come to believe that the only way to clearly differentiate, to meet the needs of different students in the room, is to give them many different opportunities simultaneously so that students get to choose which way they want to learn it. Now, in certain cases, that's a very good thing. The problem is that it's entirely impractical for a classroom teacher to do on an ongoing basis. I'm not saying that no one does it. I'm not saying no one can do it. I'm saying that the average teacher 
does not have the time to do that well, and maybe doesn't actually have the knowledge or the ability. Even among your best classroom teachers, that's not necessarily time served well, because even if that is a lesson that will help a few of the students in the room, that additional choice doesn't necessarily help the majority of the students in the room. Again, there is no research to support that the, the, the targeting of different learning styles and modalities has any significant effect on student progress. But in doing so, in trying to create all of these different things, even the good teacher has now sacrificed both their own personal strengths as well as a lot of time that could have been used either for planning, well, individual planning, planning more lessons, or for grading, providing feedback, or for meeting with students in one-on-one and small group settings to either review their work, provide additional support, remediate, or maybe just to talk. The, the third article that I'm going to link is uh, an education week uh, sort of summary of, of a bunch of other research. And what I'm going to read a, I'm going to read one line from this and I'll go back and review from a couple of the other articles. But in a review of educational research, I'm now quoting from the Education Week article, a review of educational research analysis of 46 studies found that the strong teacher-student relationships were associated in both the short and long term with improvements on practically every measure schools care about. Higher student academic engagement, attendance, grades, fewer disruptive behaviors and suspensions, and lower school dropout rates. Those effects were strong even after controlling for differences in students' individual, family, and school backgrounds. Now, that sounds great. I am not also, again, I'm not arguing that all a teacher needs to do is form a great relationship, become a buddy with their students, and learning's magically going to occur. The relationship is important, but so is content, so is pedagogy. My point in this podcast is that becoming beholden to any one approach or any one ideology is bad for students, is bad for teachers, and is bad for school systems. My my coworker who sent the article about the different you know learning styles and targeting them through a variety of differentiated activities, I don't think that's his concern. I don't think that he is locked in on this one thing and thinks it's the only way to do it. But he did send the article for a reason, and clearly one of the reasons is he thinks that people should be considering, okay? I, I don't know if that's actually healthy to consider this kind of teaching. Now, I'm going to read something from a Scientific American article that, I, again, I'm going to link. This will be article number two. And it, in this, they're summarizing some other research, and, and this is what they have to say. Research by Polly Hussman and Valerie Dean O'Loughlin at Indiana University takes a new look at this important question about learning styles. Most previous investigations on learning styles focused on classroom learning and assessed whether instructional style impacted outcomes for different types of learners. But is the classroom really where most of the serious learning occurs? Some might argue that in this era of flipped classrooms and online course materials, students master more of the information on their own. That might explain why instructional style in the classroom matters little. It also raises the possibility that learning styles do matter. Perhaps a match between a student's individual learning styles and their study strategies is the key to optimal outcomes. Essentially, what the research is finding is that if a student's learning style matters at all, it matters when the student uses it on their own to study, to learn, to read, you know, to whatever the work is going to be, to prepare for an assessment, things like that. That This doesn't actually happen. The article goes on later to say, despite knowing their own self-reported learning preferences, nearly 70% of students failed to employ study techniques that supported those preferences. Most visual learners did not rely heavily on visual strategies, 
nor did most reader, uh, reading, writing learners rely predominantly on reading strategies and so on. Given the prevailing belief that learning styles matter and the fact many students blame poor academic performance on the lack of a match between their learning style and teachers' instructional methods, one might expect students to rely on the techniques that support their personal learning preferences when working on their own. Think about that. Students will tell a teacher, and I've had many students do this, and they mean very well. I, this is not a bad thing to say. They know how they learn best. And what they're really doing is asking the teacher to tailor a lesson, or maybe all of the lessons, to that particular style. However, when the student is then asked to go learn something on their own, whether it's in the classroom or at home, through study, through reading, preparing for a test, whatever it may be, 70% of students in these studies do not use those same learning styles and strategies to help themselves. Is it reasonable, now I'm focusing on high school students, is it reasonable for a 16, a 17, 18-year-old student to ask the teacher to entirely change a lesson to plan instruction special for these styles when the student doesn't even attempt to use those same styles on their own? Now, we can argue that it's because the student hasn't been taught to do that. But if the student hasn't been taught how to use their own learning preference, how does the student know that they have that learning preference in the first place? It's not that any of these are bad things on their own. However, I know several teachers and a few principals and, and, and a few former teachers who worked very hard on the idea of stations or on creating student choice within the classroom, not just in terms of a product, but in terms of, and, and just a, a project or a test, but talking about creating choice on a daily basis, there are multiple different ways that you can learn this today. What are you going to choose? Now, if you're a classroom teacher and you do that, more power to you. If you have the time to plan and prepare and you can do that well, that's fantastic. But I ask, when are you doing that? Does all of your planning time, your study hall time, your lunch time, time before or after school when you're in your classroom, do you use all of that time in this creation, this planning? Because my guess is that it takes a significant amount of time. What could you be doing instead? Well, we could do a lot of things. You could, you know, take a nap, <laughs> read Facebook. You could do a lot of, you know. But the research actually indicates that probably the most effective thing you could be doing is working with students one-on-one -on -one and in small groups, both on academics, supporting them through one-on-one -on -one tutoring and, and review, but also through just forming personal relationships, getting to know the students, not just on a surface level, not just so you can speak casually, knowing who they are, knowing what they value, knowing a little bit about what's going on at home, who they're friends with, what are the stresses in their life at that moment. All of the research available says that that is actually the best thing a teacher can do with that time. Now, is that all you should do? No. Again, my point here is that we should not be beholden to any one ideology. Next week, I'm going to attend a, a mandated, you know, division-wide training that's been ongoing for two or three years now about PBL, project-based learning. Um, it might be PBA now. I don't. We keep changing the acronyms. Uh, when we first began, we were using the term one to the world, the idea that students would work on things in the classroom and we would make, quote unquote, authentic assessments and authentic activities that would then be sent out into the community where the, the, the community surrounding the school would have some contact with student products. In certain settings and in certain cases, that's a great idea. The idea of project-based learning, again, is a great idea. However, if we become beholden to that philosophy, 
if that is what we do 90% of the time or 70% of the time, think of how little else gets done. Projects are great, but they're slow. They usually require students to work together. And you ask any group of students, particularly your higher achieving students, how often do they want to work in groups? And they will tell you relatively rarely because they end up pulling all the weight because they have to coordinate with other students who don't do the work or don't do the work as well. Some students do very little. Some students do a lot. Now you're going to say, oh, no, 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 no. You can uh, assign roles. You can give. But what happens when one student doesn't complete their role? What happens when one person doesn't pull their weight? That's a frustration for everyone else. Either one part of what we're doing looks terrible, and even if it doesn't affect my grade, it does affect my pride in the product, or I do it for them. Now, does that mean we should just never do group work? We should never do a project? Of course not. There's a lot to learn through that process, through that time management, through that interaction. But if you teach a subject that has an intense timeline, a lot to cover, and let's say there's a there's some kind of test at the end of it, an AP exam, a state test, a state accountability test, something like that, then doing all of it in project form is a huge risk because it's slow. You probably don't actually cover the whole timeline, but you do have a lot of time that students are working on their own and you can float around, talk to them, see what they're doing. You can provide support. It does provide the opportunity for that one-on-one and small group engagement that allows to create relationships and helps you to support those students. So clearly there's something we should be doing. The question is, should we do it all the time? I don't know. I haven't attended the training yet either. And to be fair, many of my colleagues have said it was uh, among the best professional development uh, sessions or, you know, multiple day trainings they've ever attended. So it's not that I have a a particularly, you know, low assessment of this already. I'm not expecting anything terrible. I'm actually expecting to get some, some ideas and some strategies I can and will use very quickly in my classroom. But it's never going to be the only thing I do. I've had colleagues recently in the last couple of years say that, you know, lecture is dead. You can't lecture anymore. Students won't pay attention. Students can't do that. I don't think that's true. I think that's only true if you're bad at lecturing. Now, even a good lecturer shouldn't do it every day. I would like to believe I'm a good lecturer. And I don't say that because, you know, it's me. That's feedback I get from students. Some of the best classes in my class in an 11th grade English class Some of the best days we have in the entire year are essentially lecture and whole class discussion. I talk for a while, then we go back and forth, and then I talk for a while, and we go back and forth. And sometimes we work in quick small group discussions or little writing pieces. But some of the things that students seem to enjoy and appreciate the most, and at the end of the year say they learn the most from, really is essentially a lecture. Now, should I do that every day? No. Should I do that for every lesson? Is that working for every student? No. Again, one strategy doesn't work all the time. The problem, my real concern here, is that we think that doing all the strategies all the time is best. And so my colleagues sent this article. And again, that'll be article one. I'll I'll link these in the post. Article one is, is the original idea about using students' learning styles and multiple modalities. At the same time, students can choose and essentially work through stations, create that variety. And it argues that that's the best way to do it so students can do what they're comfortable with. But I 
don't really think that the best education always comes from the thing that you're most comfortable with. In fact, sometimes you learn the most when you're uncomfortable, but you find a way to achieve anyway, where the teacher scaffolds it and models it for you. So in response to the article, I, I wrote an email back, and uh, I actually think this is probably going to be an ongoing conversation, but here, here it is. I'm just going to read the email, or part of the email that I wrote in response, hoping to continue this conversation. And I said, much of the blog post is good, but some of it relies on the idea that students' individual learning styles can serve as a gateway to growth. There is little research to support that. I am not arguing for a pure lecture-style course. Rather, I'm arguing that a good class should not be purely based on any single style. Though pedagogy should probably vary between subject areas and ages or grade levels, generally speaking, a variety of the activities listed in the blog post are good when targeted to the content or skills being taught. My point here is that it is probably more important to design activities and lessons around the goal, what skill or content should students gain, than around individual students themselves. It is more important to provide a variety of activities over time than all at once in a single lesson. Of course, our goals and occasionally methods should vary somewhat between students based upon their abilities and previous experiences, but designing vastly different activities to suit each student within a single lesson is an immense burden for the teacher it becomes unwieldy and chaotic without proper planning, and that planning is often time-intensive. If we want teachers to build positive relationships with students, then they need time to talk with students individually and in small groups, which most often occurs at transition points in lessons, during study hall or planning time, and during lunch or after school. There is substantial and growing research that indicates strong, meaningful relationships between teachers and students has greater impact on student achievement than the differentiation and choice espoused in the blog post, Article 1. If teachers take on the task of planning many lessons that incorporate many different styles and activities during each lesson, they lose the time necessary to build meaningful individual relationships. I guess what I'm saying is that parts of that blog post are good, but some of the emphasis on diversity of activities within each given lesson requires sacrificing time that can be used more productively. There is more research to support relationship building and clear focus on goals than to support the quote-unquote multiple modalities proposed in the original article. And then, you know, I, I sort of state, hey, you know, I've linked some articles that, that sort of support what I'm talking about and some research on the possible fallacy of learning styles and the need for relationship building. I'm not exactly sure what we would do with all this, but my real suggestion is not becoming beholden to any one ideology, whether it be fully differentiated instruction, graduated rubrics, station work, project-based learning, just lecture, lots of test prep. No one specific ideology is best. And when we think we have the one and we go all in and put our time and efforts into that, we are probably inhibiting the teacher and student growth. Variety is the spice of life and variety is the spice of education. And teachers should work both to their students' strengths, but also to their own. And if we put all of our time into creating very complicated, uh, choice, you know, enriched lessons every day where students are always choosing and get to do what they're comfortable with, it means we're not asking them to do the other things they're not comfortable with. Teachers should play to their own strengths, but that doesn't mean you only do one thing. It means that when necessary, you fall back on the strategies that work best for you, for your most important content or the lessons that work best. And at other times... You need to do the stations. We need to do the group work. We need to do a project. We need to do these other things. But we can't do the same thing all the time. Becoming beholden to one educational philosophy 
is a recipe for disaster. That's it. That's what I got. Thank you for listening to episode 16 of the ClassCast podcast. If you have ideas, comments, please let me know. I'd love to continue this conversation.